Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The 80s Rewind Show Podcast. It's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now... Welcome your host, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to the It's Rewind Show podcast with me, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Welcome along to today's show, and thank you for joining me. And don't forget to go on to whichever streaming site you have and check out all the other episodes. Now, if you want to reach me, you can reach me at the 80s Rewind Show at gmail.com. Now, that jingle cost me a tenner, so I'm going to use it again. The 80s Rewind Show at gmail.com. So, yeah, so don't forget, you can reach me at that email address if you want to say hello or talk some 80s. Or maybe you're a pop star and you want me to interview you. You never know. Crazy things have happened. Uh, you can get me at that email address. So, on to today's episode. So, in the early 80s, you had synth pop. You had electric pop. You had singer-songwriters. And what you also had is one salsa band. That's it. One salsa party band. And that was Modern Romance. And today I'm joined by a band member and drummer, Andy Kiriaku. Um, what a great guy. He's really, really lovely. And we had a great chat and he's a really friendly guy and, uh, and has fond memories of his time in Modern Romance. He's now fronting the band as well with a new version of Modern Romance and he talks about that as well. And we had a great chat. Lovely fella. Great time. What can I say? I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did talking to Andy. Um, yeah, that's it. He's a great guy. Let's get to it. So um, when you were growing up, was there a lot of music around the house? What sort of stuff was like influencing when you was growing up? Do you know what? There was the only music around the house, and it's sad to say, because my parents were very, my parents were Greek Cypriot and they were very insular, Greek Cypriot. Everything was Greek, right? They didn't want to come out and mix. It's, you know, it's just the way things were in those days. Mm. Um, they came to, ironically, I've mentioned this in my book, but they came to another country and then what people do is when they, uh, it happens with Polish people and everyone. They have, they've had these little communities and then we had this little Greek community and everyone spoke Greek and everyone went to the Greek shops and no one learned to speak English and no one wanted to mix with English people or mix with anyone else because they wanted to keep their, their own little thing going, you know. And it's just something that happens with all cultures. So because of that, all I was subjected to was bloody Greek music. Only in the 1960s, when I was about 65, 66, when I started listening to music, I remember listening to things like the Four Tops, um, you know, the Beach Boys, the Monkeys. And it's funny because only when I started writing the book and and then going back to those days and having to re- remember that and go, oh, yeah, I was into that. And it suddenly dawned on me how much that influenced me, but without me actually knowing it. You know, like when you, you go, well, I'm going to listen to this guitarist and then you pick up his things and you you realise he's influenced you because you've been listening to him actively. Um with uh, with the music I was listening to, I didn't realise how much it influenced me until now. Because at the time, I didn't want to be a musician. I was right. just listening to music because you listen to music. Um, and it's only in, in later years, as I said, now that I started writing, I realised, God, all my backing vocal um, arrangements and stuff were so influenced. And, and when I say influenced, not to the point where you mirror or copy what you're doing, but they, I always wondered how I could harmonise quite naturally 
you know, as a drummer, I started doing harmonies and singing. And I remember we were in we in the in the van one day and everyone was singing and I started singing and they like, looked around and went, My God, you can sing. You know, just <laughs> one so you can sing. Right, that's it. You're on backing vocals now, microphone, you know, that's it, you know. Um, and I've always wondered how was it I knew how to do that? Just kind of, you know, but obviously listening to the Beach Boys and the Monkeys and the Beatles, all these bands that had heavy emphasis on on harmonies, that's what ingrained itself. It was in there, floating around somewhere. Mm. And at the point where I did decide, yes, I want to play music, and I, I, I developed into a writer afterwards, um, that all came to the fore. But it never, it never really hit home until I started writing the book and I had to refer back to that time. And then I thought, oh, my God, yes, that's where it came from. Yeah. It was weird. Amazing. And so where did the, like, learning the drums come in? What was the, the fire to think drums is the one for me? I'd like to say that um, I was influenced by Sandstone to becoming a drummer. Complete nonsense. Mm. I had no interest whatsoever in any instrument. I was an avid music fan. Listening to at the time I discovered Pink Floyd, I discovered Santana and Genesis, and I was a big soul fan from the Motown thing anyway. Mm. Huge Bowie fan. I thought these influences coming in all this stuff. No interest in playing anything. But a friend of mine um, at school had bought a drum kit mm. and just casually mentioned it one day. Oh, my mum and dad bought me this drum kit. Um, and I thought, okay. And I, I used to go to his house virtually every day after school, spend a couple of hours and then come home. Um, so I went around to his house that day, as we spoke about the kit, that evening, you know, afternoon after school, went round. And he had this drum kit there. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, come and see the drum kit. And I looked at it and I went, you know, <laughs> nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so no, you want to have a go? I mean, if he, I think if he knew what he was doing, if he had an idea, um, he said, do you want to go? And I went, yeah, well, whatever. Okay, come on then. Took the drumsticks sat there. No idea what I'm doing, obviously. Absolutely no idea. And just went like this. And something happened. Uh, it's like, I don't know about you, I remember the first time a girl kissed me. Mm. It's like, what was that? <laughs> this was the same. This wow. was like, what the hell just happened? And I was hooked to the extent of, if you fast forward, eventually, um, I mean, I was practicing on cardboard boxes at home because I had no drums, but cardboard boxes practicing on the bed. And then this guy that had the drum kit eventually, obviously it was just a passing fad with him. Mm. So I actually want to buy the drum kit. I, I'd actually developed into a better drummer than him by now. And he had a drum kit and I didn't. <laughs> I was practicing on anything I would find. Um, and I bought this drum kit off him in there for 25 quid. It was rubbish, I have to say. What was it? it? Can you remember what it was? No, it was like a mishmash of this, this, that, the other. And, and as a matter of fact, I still had the snare drum for it until about five years ago. And then I was just, why am I keeping this thing? I've just sold it, you know. Um, I kept thinking, oh, special, it's from my first drum kit. And I thought, no, don't be so sentimental. It's a bloody drum. You're not going to use it. Get rid of it. I did. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I um, bought his drum kit. And just went on from there. I just never stopped. And everything after that was a bit, you know, I mean, it was, I was already heavily into music before, as I said, prior to that. Yeah. And it became, not only am I a listener, now I want to emulate what I'm hearing. I want to do that. I want to try and replicate that. Yeah. That was it. It was all about music after that. That's amazing. So my dad was a drummer and then I, I learned to play drums because of my dad and he wouldn't actually teach me anything. He said, because if I teach you to play, you'll learn just like me. So he said, go away and get your favourite 
records and your favourite drummers and learn from those so you get your own style. Was it the same for you? Did you just listen to lots of drummers? And Yeah, I just listened to loads and loads of stuff and, and copied it and would, you know, listen to a whole album. Go right. I mean, status quo, they had an album called Pile Driver and another one called Hello. And I would play them back to back because it was energy. Wow. Dripping, dripping, drumming away, you know. Um, the worst thing for me, that, and you as a drummer would understand this, mm-hmm. I'm playing on the bed. So um, when I eventually got a drum kit, I thought, oh, I've my feet. <laughs> so I had, to compl- I had to relearn again. Yeah. I was like, um, yeah, not using my feet at all. So all of a sudden, I've realised the bass drum was going to be there, right? So got, and it was a bit of a nightmare. And mm. also, playing from the bed and then going to a drum kit, there's this bounce that I didn't... <laughs> I didn't take into account, but I was like, bang, and the drums, I'm going, I'll go and pick up a drumstick for the other side of the room. And it took a while to get to get into it after that. But um, yeah, it was just listening to different people, trying to, um, uh, you know, sort of copy them and, and listening to, and I was going to gigs, I was going to hell of a, I was going to four or five gigs a week sometimes. Fantastic, yeah. Just to watch people, just to hear stuff and, and I'd be standing there watching, you know, and the thing is, I don't know. I, I've actually, um, I've actually suggested this in my book to people. I said, "Look, I was self-taught, but my advice to you is: don't teach yourself. Go and get lessons. There's nothing. People seem to have this pride. I taught myself. Yeah, but if you went for lessons, number one, you'd get to this level far quicker because people are showing you what to do and the correct way to do it. Mm. And and number two, you'll learn stuff." that you wouldn't otherwise learn. Because I used to listen to records and go, how the hell is he doing that? Yeah. I used to see a gig and watch someone do it and go, oh my God, is that how you do that? I used to think, you know, I've got three arms to do that. And then realise it's, a, it's a, actually, a, you know, a, it's almost like a magician's trick. Yeah. Your hand for a split second doesn't do what it's normally doing. It does that little flick and it comes back and you go, that's how you do that. Oh my God, I'm be trying to do it without stopping all the other stuff I'm doing. It. So it's actually always better to get lessons because you will see things, you know, get taught things that you otherwise wouldn't see. You'll get there quicker. Um, you'll achieve a higher level of proficiency far sooner. So that's my advice. And any drummers that are listening, and I'm a singer now, but I was a drummer, as you all know. <laughs> any, anyone that's drumming, get lessons. There's nothing wrong with it. You know. Yeah, and try not to copy John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, as you'll just give up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, drum solo, drum solo with his hands. <laughs> I remember seeing that and going, I, I, "I did." I thought, "I'm going to give up if he can play that with his hands." I, I ain't got a chance, you know. But, but every, I mean, John Bonham was special. There are drummers that are special, just like there are footballers that are special, and you can't give up because you can't get to that thing. Because otherwise, there'd only be four footballers in the world. That's right. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> So did you, what, what sort of age were you when you joined your first band? When did you start playing in bands itself? I think I pro- probably joined my first band when I was 17. Although I was asked to join a band before that. Right. I was asked to join a soul band. This is one of my favourite stories to tell people because <laughs> um, it's a very hip kind of soul band, all black guys. They were soul band. Right. They asked me to join as their drummer. And one of them actually said to me, I auditioned for them and they went, do you know what? He said, yeah, I want you to start, blah, blah, I want you to play with us. I'm like, yeah, great, great. And one of them turned around and said to me, do you know what? He said, for a white boy, you're really funky. <laughs> nice. 
And I thought, oh, was like, I feel great. I thought, I'm the But the reason I didn't join the band, because there was a, there was another pro- a, a condition that I couldn't fulfil, which was you can't come on stage with that drum kit, because that's the drum kit I bought from my mate in school. Right. And, it, and I'm telling you, it was rubbish. I mean, you looked at it and you went, no, no. You know, it, it's just... Um, so I said, well, look, I'm just about to leave school and go to college. You know, I, I can't um, buy a drum kit. When, I get, when am I going to get a thousand pounds from to buy a decent kit? I want mm. to buy a proper one. And um, I said, I can't afford it. So anyway, they got in, in the end, they got another drummer who, I, admittedly, was better than me. Is fantastic a guy called Mark. Was an amazing drummer. <laughs> he then went on to join a band called the Dirty Strangers later on. Yeah, I don't know if you ever heard of them, but they were yeah. quite quite a big punky band. Um, but he's an amazing drummer. Uh, played, he reminded me a lot of Billy Cobham. Right. Wow. Yeah. Just outrageous what we were playing. Um, but I stayed friends with them. That's how I became friends with Mark. They got this new drummer, I became friends with him. He used to go to his gigs, used to go to their gigs. And then the band split up. Right. And this band, they were called Headquarters. They split up and they became two, two other bands, mm. like, like two factions. One of them was Lynx. Remember Links? Yeah, I remember Links, yeah. You're lying? No, no, I've heard of them. I've heard of them. David Grant. Yeah. David Grant, yeah. And the other one became a band called Central Line. Right. You had hits as well in the 80s. Yeah. So five of these bands are on top of the pops and I'm sitting there going, could have been with him. (laughs) Could have been with him. (laughs) Because if I was a drummer of the band, if I had joined, I would have gone to either one of these places. Right, yeah. Um, But then... Ironically, less than a year later, I'm on top of the pops with Modern Romance. So it's like, how bizarre is that? How, how strange that things work out this way? It's futurious, yeah. It was going to happen either way, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, was yeah, meant, yeah. it was meant to happen, obviously. Yeah, so the band originally was Leighton Buzzards, wasn't it? Was that right, with the two guys? Yeah, nothing uh, to do with me, though. Yeah, I'm so proud, that- to, proud to say that it's nothing to do with me. Oh, okay. Because they it was uh, Jeff Dean and David James, wasn't it? They they were in Leighton Buzzers. But that was kind of a, a parody punk band. So it already, already, already had a sort of party vibe, didn't it? They were sort of not, you know what I mean? No. And, and, no. no, I'm saying that. I'm saying, yes, I agree with oh, you. Oh, sorry. So I thought you said no. Uh, and then obviously they formed uh, Modern Romance. Uh, and then they sort of had that sort of party attitude carrying on with a different style. I think they tried synthesizers for a while, didn't they? And it, was, it wasn't working. Yes, I'm... Very pleased to say that before I joined them, they released two singles. Yeah. And which flopped. I didn't even know they had a record doing it, to be honest, when I joined them. I had no idea. I just joined this band, unknown band, and I said, yeah, I'll join you. Yeah. Uh, and one of the songs, which was called Modern Romance, so it's Modern Romance by Modern Romance. Yeah. Ter- terrible idea. <laughs> Probably the worst song I have ever heard, ever. Ever, honestly, wow. you can shut up your face and the birdie song. I'll tell you what, I'd rather listen to them than this. <laughs> it was the worst record in the history of recordings, as far as I'm concerned. Right. The other record, a song called Tonight, mm. was actually a really good electro song. Um, and we used to play it live, always. Oh, did you? Always, yeah. And it was one of my favourite songs to play. Right. It was a great vibe, great song. We just never made it. Um, and then when I joined, Everybody Salsa was released. Yeah. So did you play on Everybody Salsa? No, in actual fact, Everybody Salsa was re- was recorded just before I joined. Right. Um, 
but I did all, obviously it was recorded, but as soon as it was released, I was doing the promotional work, I was doing the gigs, I was doing everything, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's the only modern romance song I never played on that has got drums on it, you know, that's got real drums. Oh, I there see. Couple, there are a couple in later years that, not the hits, but a couple of, um, and, and again, we went back to electro a little bit because somebody discovered the Lindrum. Oh, yeah, Lindrum's fantastic. Yeah. The Lindrum was discovered, and then so let's use Lindrum. And I thought, no, because we're losing our sound here. This is not us. It's it can be ABC and these people. Yeah, can't be us because we've got proper brass and proper percussion. And anyway, um, but other than those songs, I've played them everything. So Moosey, uh, Best Years, High Life, Cherry Pink, everything. All of them. I've played drums all of them. Yeah, for people. Salsa was sorry. I was going to say Salsa was the only one because it was recorded just before I joined. Mm. So for people that don't know, the, the Lindrum was a drum machine. Prince loved it. Prince used it to pieces, didn't he? And it was a, it had its own sound, didn't it? It was, it was almost like a drum kit, but it create, created its own sound. It's an amazing piece of kit. It was good. It was good, amazing. but I, I must admit, I hated it at the time because I don't think we used it the way it could have been used. Um, uh, I mean, it was in its infancy when we started using it. Now we were one of the first to use it. Everyone started using it. We think yeah, we use it as well, but... Um, it's not like now when you program drums now and you sit there and you struggle to say, is this a real drummer or is this a person that's programmed it or a drummer that programmed it? Yeah. At the time, still, I still found it a bit, um, a bit kind of mechanical, even though you had these lovely sounds and stuff. It wasn't as smooth as they are these days. Yeah. Um, but also, as I said, for me, it was like we're going away from, you know, what, what we're doing. And and the proof of the pudding, as I say, is in the eating. We didn't have a hit with all those tracks. We tried one when Jeff Dean was around still, actually. Mm. And it flopped abysmally. Right. And then we went back to drums after he left, and it was like, off we go. Back yeah. Back. yeah. I mean, ironically, the Lindrum's probably about 20 grand to buy one now, isn't it? <laughs> if you try to... Oh, all those things, the Moog synthesizer. <laughs> Someone the other day found a... Um, what was the keyboard they found in their, in their loft? A profit, not a profit five. That's what I had. Um, some keyboard, like a profit five or something. And again, the, the ridiculous money to buy now. And we were giving them, we were giving them away <laughs> to buy the new Casio, whatever you know. <laughs> what we were doing, seriously. Just have five of them in the loft, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's the same with everything. Though. It's like we were giving away our toys as little kids, and they to, to get a little dinky car, Batman in a box. It's yeah. Like, mega money and we were going no we don't need these we're too old for toys now giving them away throwing them away who knew yeah my, my generation of Star Wars figures we used to melt those for fun <laughs> well I don't know if I saw a program there I've never watched it it's called Scouting for Toys oh, I've seen that yeah it's alright I've never seen it but I just saw a, a, a trailer for it and they, they were and sold for £3,000 and I was what the hell are you selling for three grand? It's some toy you know yeah um, Actually, ask, actually, I'll ask you about a toy because I've written about this in the book and now we've mentioned toys. Mm-hmm. Um, do you re- how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 46. 46. Oh, you won't remember this then, no. There was a toy when I was a kid called a Johnny 7. Right. What was it? it? It was a gun. It was like an assault rifle. Mm-hmm. It had seven functions. So it fired grenades, it fired little missiles, it squirted water. It did all stuff. And I just wondered if you knew about it. But I looked online. Um, to see if, if you could get one, just just out of curiosity. Not that I want one, yeah. But I if you could get one, seven hundred and same quid. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. 
I remember there was a Star Wars figure that came out with Weetabix and my mate had five or six of them. And when we were bored, we used to melt them together for no reason other than we could. And I, I think they're changing hands for 178 quid or something now. And he had like five and we melted them into a big plastic lump. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's that almost a grand's worth in one lump. Yeah, it? it was. Yeah. <laughs> Just hand the lump in. There you go. Trust me, they're in there. Yeah. <laughs> so when it came down to um, like recorded, who was was there a main songwriter in the band, or were you all sort of just collaborating songs and bringing them in? And well, initially in the in the Jeff Dean era, it was the song. The songs were written by Jeff Dean and David James. Right. Okay. Then when Jeff left. Um, they were written by David James and anyone else who was around in the band, Pr- predominantly Michael Mullins, mm. who replaced Jeff. We replaced a, a not great singer with a fantastic singer, as far as I was concerned. He brought so much to the table, mm. both in terms of songwriting, singing, arrangements. He was he was the the, the full you know, the, the real deal, as they say. So yeah, Mick was fantastic, um, and he he also had a. We had a very soulful side to him. You could hear by his singing and his influences. And we used to chat about, you know, as soon as I found that Earth, Wind & Fire was one of his great favourite bands, that was it. We were connected. That was it. We are off. <laughs> um, you know, Marvin Gaye, Luther Mandrell, so like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So we chatting away. Um, and, yeah, he did a lot of songwriting. But in later years, um, I, I contributed towards it as well. Um, I was actually writing at home and not saying anything to anyone. Um, and then... What happened was we were in the studio um, doing an album, doing an album, and everyone had been influenced by um, Beat It. Mm. Uh, no, not Beat It. Sorry, Billy Jean. Billy Jean at the time. That dun 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 dun. Right, and it's like, yeah, it was number one. And everyone's going mad. We want to write something like that with that driving kind of drum and bass thing, you know. Um, and that's where Lindrum came in. I was sitting there going, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But Lindrum took the lead for that one. Um, but then after three days, all they had was drum and bass. Mm. Literally, drums and bass. No chords, no chord sequences, no, um, you know, not even a key for the song. Yeah. It was not, it was just drum and bass, nothing. And um, after three days, I said, look, we've got nothing for this. What can we do? You know, that's all we've got, you know. It's kind of like everyone had dried up. They were devoid of ideas and everything. Um, and I said, well, look, I'll have a go. And they kind of looked at me. And I, I could hear the wheels turning. Out. <laughs> well, he surprised us in the past with his singing. Okay, let's see what happens now. So I said, yeah, I'll have a go. Let's see what happens, you know. And this is something actually I, I've become very good at doing this. Um, so Tony Visconti, he was a producer at the time, Put it on a loop. I said, yeah, here's a cassette. Off you go. I went into his office. Half an hour later, I came out. I'd written melody, verse, chorus, middle eight, like a bridge. The whole thing, just arranged it. and went, there you go. And, I, and they played it and I sang it for them. And they were, they were literally like this. <laughs> Mouths open, yeah. And they went, oh, my God. So, you know, um, obviously, because they'd done the bass and drums beforehand and we all agreed, all right, let's split it four ways, but yeah. by, by the, the law, it's my song. But I didn't write it. I said, do you know what? It's fine. Um, and so I ended up writing the title track for the album, a song called Burn It. Yeah. And then, uh, then after that, later on on the album, they carried on doing other things. And they said, we need one more track for the album. Has anyone got any ideas? And I piped up and said, well, I've got one. And no questions now because I've already 
proven my worst sort of thing about it. And they went, okay, what you got then? So I sat at the piano and played it. And I went, guitar solo here, it goes like this, you know. And that was it. They said, right, start recording it now. And it went on the album. And that was the final track to, to finish it. Wow. So what was it like for you working with Tony Visconti being a Bowie fan? Obviously in producing oh. Bowie back in the day. Do you know what? It was really quite bizarre because I don't think, I've, even at the time, I don't think, once we started having hits, then it's after that we started working with Tony. Mm. Um, and because whilst having those hits, I saw millions of people that, you know, Elton John's and Rod Stewart's and everyone, you know, even to, just to rub shoulders and say a quick hello to them, it was like brought off ducks back. So working with Tony, I don't think it hit me that I'm actually working with a legend who worked with my one of my favourite artists. It was like, oh, you work with Bowie? And he used to tell us, go, yeah, you know, I did this thing when David was doing this and that and we did this and I suggested that. And, you know, yeah, okay. And it it was like you talking about, about your mum. I went for lunch with my mum the other day. It, yeah. didn't, it just didn't hit me that he's actually talking about David Bowie. He's been working with David Bowie, he's doing this and that. It was like, oh, yeah, so David said that. Yeah, right, okay, you know. <laughs> And it's only in later years I think, I was working with Tony Visconti. Who was David Bowie's producer? And he was our producer. <laughs> what the hell? You know, but, um, I suppose it's good, really, because it meant I, I, I treated him and he treated us as equals. We were just like all mates in the studio having a laugh, doing stuff. And, and I mean, he came out with some outrageous ideas mm. for certain songs. Um, I sort of think, mate, have you come from another planet? Where did you get that idea from? And it would work. This is the thing. It would work. And I go, how did you even think of that? Yeah. Okay, fine. Okay. That's why you're Tony Visconti. That's why you work with Bowie. And that's why Bowie loves you and everyone that we work with loves you. I mean, I mean, what a heritage to work for. I mean, T-Rex as well, wasn't it? He did T-Rex. Yeah, and, T-Rex, you know, yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know how you did it. I would have been too gobsmacked to talk to him. <laughs> I just sort of, he probably would have thought I was moody standing in the corner. I'd be too scared to talk to him. <laughs> like I said, because... Probably because we um, worked with so many people, uh, not worked with them, but worked alongside people in the top of the pops, you know, sitting there, Jean Andrew and sitting there. And then, so it became like the norm. We go, oh, all right, yeah, it's going, yeah, yeah, I'm off, you know, see you later, I'm going to go to this thing, whatever. It's, you know, it's just like going to work in an office and seeing people in the office. That was our office, top of the pops, green room, or wow. wherever, you know, the morning breakfast show, whatever. That's our office. You're here, we're here. Hello, how are you? Lovely day at the office. I'm off now. So um, you did you did tell the pops fourteen times, is that right? Is it fourteen? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And was it like I, I see I get conflicting reports from people that some say it was like really great fun and it was a great vibe, and then some say it was very sort of militorial where you get marched around and the audience got pushed around and stuff. What was your experience of that? Was it like that for you? Um well no, our experience was that of an artist, you know. You're you're there all day for rehearsal. You're in, in, the, in the dressing room, walking around doing stuff. Like you do a little rehearsal, they go right, we'll call you back in a while. And it could be an hour, an hour and a half before they get back to you because they're doing other bands and they go right, let's get you back in there, whatever. Um, all very nice, very polite to us. I mean, it was lovely. I mean, to, to, the privilege of doing Top of the Pops to do it just once would have been fantastic. To do it 14 times is like, well, you know. And um, yes, they did move people around because they had this room which looks like an aircraft hangar the way they film it. And only when you go there do you realise, actually, it's not that big. I mean, it's big. It's a big studio, but it's not anywhere near as huge as you get the you know, get the impression of when you're watching it on TV. 
Because what they do is they have a stage um, here. Mm-hmm. You're looking at that stage. And then when they finish, they've got another stage here and people just turn. So the people that are at the front here, now these people on this side are at the front of the stage. So you keep thinking, how big is this place? Because they've got all these people, and, you know, as they're filming, it's different people at the front. So this place must be huge, you know. Must be- <laughs> it's, a, it's a circular thing, you know, it's a circular arena with the stages around it and people just turn to face each stage. Very cleverly done. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, they might shuffle people along a little bit or say out of the way because the cameras are moving through, you know. But that's because sometimes they only get one opportunity to do a shot, especially if it's a light tour the pops. Yeah. They need you to get out of the way because we want that shot of the drummer doing that little bit when it goes block before they go to the next bit. They only get one get one go at that, you know. Yeah. I know Top of the Pops is great. I mean, I, I haven't got a bad... The only bad thing I can say about Top of the Pops is it ended. Yeah, I agree. Only thing I can say about it. Why? Why? It was the only show that had like an eclectic feel to it musically. Now you watch a show. I mean, if you if you go to if you if you go to TV and watch stuff, it's the it's the rock channel mm. or the pop channel or the R and B or that. So all you're going to watch is R and B. So if you're into R and B, which is fine, yeah, all you're going to see is R and B. You're never going to be educated to go. Oh, hang on a minute. It's a country in Western, so I don't really like country, but this is actually quite good. So some country sounds like this. It's not all banjos and whatever. Right, okay. Um, and same with reggae. And, and you know, People listen to reggae and they think, all right, it's all about reggae or jazz or soul, whatever. I think to, to, be in that, to be in that place where you're so blinkered that you only listen to one type of music and you completely isolate yourself from anything else, I think from a music point of view, as, as a consumer, that's wrong. You've got to be, listen to other stuff. It's, it's like listening to, it's like saying, I'm only going to read the same book. Yeah, over and over again. Yeah. yeah. There are other books. There are other styles <laughs> of books. Yeah, oh, come on. <laughs> and once you, once you appeared on there, was it sort of instant fame for you? Did people start recognising you from Top of the Pops? Sort of? Oh, absolutely. In actual fact, we appeared on a Thursday, obviously, but it was live. Right. It was a live tour. Our first sold pops was a live one because it was a, what happens is if you get a bank holiday Monday, because they'd lose that day in, in the production, mm-hmm. uh, they don't do what they normally do on a Monday, they do that on a Tuesday. And what they do on a Tuesday, they do on a Wednesday, which means Wednesday is not a rehearsal day for Top of the Pops. You have a rehearsal and recording on Wednesday and they show it on Thursday. Right. Now what you do is you have rehearsal rehearsal during the day on Thursday and a live shoot at night. So it's live. Right. Anything on that's it, it's there forever. Um, and ours was a live one. And do you know what? I mean, I've said this before when I've spoken in interviews, when I've spoken to friends. Um, although I was excited to do it, don't get me wrong. I was excited. It's like I sat there thinking, oh, my God, you know, looking around, going, this is the box. We're here. Bloody hell. Yeah, great. But once I'd done it, it was like, well, I've done it now. Put that to the side. I'm going out with my mates, going out clubbing, whatever I'm doing, whatever. And... Two days later, I decided to go shopping in the high street near mm. my house. Excuse me, in North London. And I went strolling down the street, minding my own business. Totally, how can you forget you've been on telly? Honestly, <laughs> didn't even think about it. I'm walking down the street, doing, doing what I'm doing. And there's this group of girls walking towards me, but six or seven girls. 
I get walking and laughing, joking. I'm walking on again, looking at the shops again. Yeah, I might come back for that later. Yeah, you know. And as I getting closer towards me, one of them looked at me and it was as though she'd seen a ghost. She <laughs> just froze. I said, What's wrong with her? And she was looking at me and her eyes were really like huge. They were like, <laughs> and as she walked past, I thought, is she looking at me? Do I, do, do I know her? No, no. Anyway, she walked past. And then I heard the screaming to her friends, oh my God, it's him. It's him. He was on the telly the other night. He's from that band. And I have never felt so self-conscious in all my life. All of a sudden, <laughs> it's probably the closest. I, I don't get embarrassed very often. I, I, you know, and I thought, oh, dear, right. And I remember thinking, all right, Andy, gently, one foot in front of the other, this is not the time to trip over and look stupid. <laughs> I've been recognised. I think, well, just try and look cool, you know, try and look cool. Don't fall over. And then just walk, you know. But I could feel the eyes burning into me. They go, oh, is that, you sure? That was, yeah, yeah, that was in this thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I thought, right. and then it sort of hit me and I thought, yeah, of course, I was on telly the other night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you love that effect, don't you? you know? <laughs> and after that, I realised that um, I'm not going to be able to go out as freely as I would like to. As, as I, well, not as I would like to, but as freely as I normally would do because everywhere I went, um, People would come and I mean, it's great. People come and say hello and ask for autographs, but you know, you also have to be careful because unfortunately, that you get scenarios where a girl want to come and say hello to you, and her boyfriend will, would want to punch you like that because she wants to come and say hello to you. Right, I see. We had a f- few of those a few times where you know, a guy would look at me and I think, "Why are you looking at me?" And I realise his girlfriend's looking at me, and I go, "Right, okay." Yeah. But most time, most people would always come up and say hello and. I mean, what was really fun as well, being in the, from the Greek Cypriot community, I'd always I'd go to parties and people would go, oh, um, we're related. Because my mum's dad's brother's sister's dog's cat once <laughs> sex with my mate's pigeon, and your the p- pigeon is owned by your auntie. So we're not related. You'd be like, it's a, it's a really bizarre connection. And I'd go, oh, okay, then. How <laughs> I, I, I could I argue with that? <laughs> I mean, your live appearances and the records sound like a lot of fun. Was it the same recording them as well in the studio? Was there a great party vibe when you were doing those? Um, I think it was just a great party vibe all the time. The whole the whole thing was party time. It was always, I mean, listen, being perfectly honest, there was always lots of drink and substances around, even though I don't drink, I don't smoke, I've never done drugs. Yeah. But they're always yeah. around. It, always, it seemed to help everybody else. I didn't need that stuff. Um, but we're always having a laugh in the studio. Always, and the thing is, when you create new sounds, and I don't mean music just by, by like a new song. I'm talking about actually creating a new sound by using something um, untraditional. Mm. <coughs> it doesn't. Sort of, everyone goes, oh, you know, oh, something new, you know, great. And, and there's always something happening, or some new vibes, and you know, new ideas that are coming around, and, mm. and that keeps everyone fresh and going, and keeps everyone. And, and yeah, I mean, the stuff was happy. The music was happy. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, and it just, I mean, we were all buoyed by that anyway. You know, yeah. I can't have you something like that. It's going to keep me going. Um, and it seems to do wonders as well in, in regards to, to in, in regards with the record company. Yeah. Um, you know, they loved all that stuff. They loved to come to the studio and hear some happy sounds and, you know, Monterey Mass doing the happy stuff. And obviously we've got loads of gigs where people wanted to have a party and have a great time. And we're still doing that now. That's what people say. Party band. Monterey Mass, they'll get you dancing. They'll get you singing. Yeah, because it, it was around, was it 84? They wanted to change the style a little bit and like make it a little bit more serious. Was that was that right? Yeah, yeah, about 84, 85. Uh, yeah, late 84. And I think that's, I think that's what cost us in the end um, at that time. Um, I think if we have stayed on the track that we were on all those years, um, I mean, we tried it once when, when <clears throat> Jeff was in the band, his last attempt at uh, a uh, uh, single with us was, um, again, a little bit electronic here, a little bit solely, and it wasn't, it wasn't that driving kind of Latin. There's nothing Latin about it at all. Yeah. Um, the most Latin thing about it was someone probably ordered a Mexican pizza while we were having it. That was about it. <laughs> but yeah, there was nothing Latin about it at all. And it died a death. Mm. Absolutely died a death. And then as soon as we got back to something with a bit of a Latin feel, we were in the charts again. So I thought, there it is. Don't, don't stray away from me. Having said all that, um, I was shocked when it was after... Don't stop that crazy rhythm. We recorded a song called Walking in the Rain, which yeah. is a ballad. And I remember thinking, is this right? It's a great song. Yeah. Great song. And, and Mick's a great singer. He sang it really well. <clears throat> and I thought, is this the right way to go? Um, and it was because it was a phenomenal, it was one of the biggest selling singles of the year. Mm. As a matter of fact, we were told by the record company that had it sold that many copies over a slightly shorter span, it would have gone to number one. Yeah. It's enough to get to number because it because what happened is it and it did something quite unusual that song um, that record. It got to number nine. Then a week later, it stayed at number nine, and the week after that, it went to number seven. Mm. Now normally, when you get to number nine, you either go up or down. But for us to start number nine, it means we're we're selling consistent consistently. X amount of records required to stay at that point. Right. But to go to number seven the week after, amongst all these new singles that are coming out, and 
if that what we said even more singles was going on here, you know. And they said if you'd have sold those amount of singles in a week less, you know, that, over, over, over a period of seven days less, yeah, that would have warranted the jump to number one. It's like, oh wow, well, you know. But anyway, one of those things. But again, that song was out of the ordinary for us. And yeah. I, I did question it, and go, but it became a huge single. I mean, it was number one in the Far East as well. We went, uh, uh, yeah, we went to the Far East. Not, we went to, funny enough, we went to the Far East thinking that we were going there to introduce the band to the Far East and do a tour to promote our album, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But we arrived at the airport and um, we got taken through the, you know, security, but through the VIP security by the chief of police. Nice. Someone's pulled a few strings here. This is nice, yeah. So we get taken through. And then there are these throngs of people. And I thought, what's going on? Something's going on here, you know. I said, what's going on over there? He said, what's the all those people? And he said, they're here for you. <laughs> what's really here for us? He said, do you not know? He goes, you're number one at the moment. <laughs> oh, well, it'd be nice if someone told us, you know. <laughs> I mean, Walking in the Rain is a really unusual single because it, it it's like for anyone that comes uh, like to the band now, if you put like, say, I, I and that together, they're completely different bands almost. It's, it's yeah. crazy. It's more like a teenage band was, you know, then ran into an adult band, if you know what I mean. Like there's a, a development. The funny thing is, while, whilst Mick was in the band, we did things like B-sides and, and uh, you know, um, album tracks and stuff, which were, we did things like... Um, uh, Abraham, Martin, and John, mm. uh, Marvin Gaye. We did love letters. We did just my imagination. Um, stuff that we could never have done while Jeff was in the band. And we did all these things. And and I think that's what prompted them to think, or uh, prompted me to think, yeah, why don't you make this our next single? And David, yeah, yeah, right. And we did it. Yeah, uh, great decision. But I think we um, maybe overstayed our welcome <clears throat> where that kind of music we should have gone back then to doing something that we're known for and then gone gone again because our next singles were a bit more um again soulful yeah would you would but, you want to turn into a soul band eventually was that that the way it was gonna hopefully go for you or well not for me i mean i listen i love soul i love soul but i i know that this band were meant to do the latin stuff and the thing is there was nobody else in the charts doing this stuff. That's true, yeah. There isn't anybody, yeah. Um, we were the, we're the only band, we're solo artists, but we're the only band that have had hits with Latin American stuff, like mega global hits like this. You know, you've had Ricky Martin, you've had Gloria Estefan, but as a band, just a band, mm. there's more romance. That so, have had hits. People have tried it, but we're the only ones who actually managed it for some reason. Yeah. Did you play the percussion parts as well over the top? Would you... Uh, no. No. Cousin was a guy called Louis Chardin, who, if you look him up, right, mm-hmm. if you go and Google Louis Chardin and have a look at what he's played played on, you will sit there and go, is there any... He probably, in the 80s, he probably played, played on 75, 80% of the singles that were released. Wow. Um, everybody. You know, he'd leave, he'd leave us and go, right, I've got, I've got a studio session there with Trevor Horn. He'd go from Trevor Horn, he'd go to him, he'd go to, you know, it was like all over the place. He played on everything. Yeah. It, uh, and then, you know, pardon the pun, but he was instrumental in what was going on 
uh, percussively with all these bands. They just wanted that percussive thing, and he had it. He had it all going. He, he could play timbales, uh, congas, all the other little bits that go with him. His timing was impeccable, amazing. Um, funny enough, we, we used to share when we used to go on tour. We shared a room because we were just like. Yeah. Two pieces of Percussion sticks together. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We used to have a competition after the gigs. And I'm sorry if I gross anybody out with this, but we'd have a competition and see who could wring the most sweat out of their t shirt at the end of it. Because <laughs> we were drenched by the end of it. We were really, go, on, go, on, go on, you try it. Right. Um, and in fact, I introduced him to the girl he ended up marrying. Oh, no way. Cool. Yeah, she was a friend of mine. And uh, I took her to the studio with me one day. And, um, He's, 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 he's Brazilian, so he speaks Portuguese, and he goes, Andy, he goes, I really love your girlfriend. She's very nice. And I went, well, she's not my girlfriend, mate. She's she's a friend, you know. Anyway, we finished the session, and at the end of it, he went, oh, Andy, he said, yeah, your girlfriend, she's still nice, mate. Very nice. Right? <laughs> right, okay. So I went over to said, Maria, come with me. She was, just come with me. So she came with me. He's loading up his car, uh, Maria, this is I found, Lewis. This is Maria. Maria, this is Lewis. He really likes you. Get on with it. And I walked off and left them. <laughs> nice. That was it. They went out on a date. They got engaged. Got married. They had kids. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> and I'm still in touch with her even to this day. Oh, magic! That's magic, isn't it? That's great. So, um, when when the band broke up, was it an amicable breakup or was it kind of just arguing or was it kind of you knew you'd done your bit and it was kind of wind down or? It was just like a petering out kind of thing. Um, we were on tour, and I said, after this tour finishes, I'm leaving the band. Mm. And then Mick said, well, if he's leaving, I'm leaving as well. <laughs> so I finished the tour, and on the same day, I said, bye, bye, and we went off. <clears throat> um, a lot of reasons, but a lot of it for me was financial. It's like you can't be in a hit band and having all these hits and not making any money. And it was the way it was structured at the time and the way the management structured it and Nothing to do with the record company. It was all to do with management. Not right. re- people, oh, record companies rip you off. No. The royalties came in. They just never came to us. We, we, we just never saw anything from record sales. That was the way it was. Okay, yeah. and I, just, I just got fed up with people assuming that I've got a Ferrari and, you know, a big house, but I'm actually still living at home with my mum and dad. Yeah. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be able to be in the band because I wouldn't be able to stay. I'd have to go and get a day job because I wouldn't be able to live. Yeah, I get you. So, yeah. Yeah. so that was it. I just thought, uh, I'm just going. And then Mick left and that was in there. It carried on for a couple of months with David James and a couple of girl singers, dancers, sort of doing PAs and stuff. And then he called it a day. And yeah. then in 1999, I contacted him um, with a view to starting up the band again because I realised that people are hankering back to the 80s now. It's a good time. And um, he didn't want to do it. So he said to me, look, you know, you were there from from the from before everybody else salsa became a hit. Mm. Um, you did all the promotional work for it from that point onwards, and you did everything in the band. You're as far as I'm concerned, you're you're as original a member as you can get. Um, so you were there from the beginning of the success right to the end. You, you said, as far as I'm concerned, you're as um, entitled to take the name as anyone else. So you signed it over to me. And goes there, you go. You're modern romance now because you are a member of modern romance. I always have been. Yeah. So he said, uh, you might as well take it forward because I don't want to do it anymore. That's really nice, isn't it? That's amazing. Yeah. And then he said to me, if you ever need any help, I'll be there. And you know what? Again, 
I'm still in touch with him to this day. We meet three or four times a year, have lunch, have a chat. We send each other emails and see what's going on. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, and it was, it was a great gesture from him. And he said, if you ever need any help, and he has a couple of times helped me out when I've needed stuff and said, yeah, I can do that for you. Great. You know, That's wonderful. What, what was it like coming out from behind the drums to being a singer? Was that an easy transition for you? Was it difficult or? Frightening. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. Um, it wasn't so bad when I was rehearsing for it, and because what happened is, obviously, I'm getting this band together now. So I, I looked, I looked at all the musicians I knew, and I said, "Well, you're great. I love you. You're, you can play drums. You can do that." And I've you know, got a few people that I knew to write them. I am modern romance. You're going to be my band. That's it. And we rehearsed. It was fine, and I didn't realise um, how frightening it would be. And I was reluctant to do it. To be honest, my original idea was to play percussion. Sing a couple of songs with a percussion rig in front of me, sing a couple of songs like Everybody Sounds the Best Years, whatever, and have another singer to do the bulk of the songs, but just to mm. do a couple and, and plug percussion, you can be at the front as well and you know be the focal a little bit of a focal point as an original member. Um, which is why I couldn't play drums. You can't be an original original the only original member and be at the back. It's like, no, you've got to be everyone, everyone was saying, you know, my friends that the musicians were saying, you've got to be at the front. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have to be. You know, people have to see you. Okay, fine. So I thought I'd do the percussion bit. Um, we held auditions for singers, and don't get it wrong, there were some great singers that came in. There was a guy that came in, sounded like flipping, and I, I, I do a, a Richard Marks covers myself. But he came in, he sounded like Richard Marks. He was like, bloody hell, this guy's great. You know, had another guy, all these different guys came in, great. They all sang these songs, they, they, so bring a composition of their own, not their own, but a song they chose to sing. And that would be great. And then we'd say, right, now you have to sing my romance song, you know. And it's, okay. And we'd play and go, right, okay, you can sing it. And they all struggled. Mm. And I couldn't realise. I, I, I couldn't understand why they were struggling. I really couldn't. I was like, and because we gave them all the same song. It was best years. Yeah. So that, therefore we've got, we, we, if it's the same song, you can compare everyone the same, you know. So we give everyone the same song and then we hear the different versions. Everyone was struggling. Everyone. I couldn't understand that. Why is it so difficult? Why not? And then the penny dropped that it's in a ridiculously high key. Not ridiculously <laughs> high key, but it's in a higher key than the, your, your average singer would want to sing in. And all these guys that are singing Richard Marks and stuff, on Phil Collins stuff, is what they're used to. And all of a sudden, they're going like, no, 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 no. All of a sudden, it's, I see the person. And it's all up like there. So, That's right, yeah. <clears throat> um, and, I, and then someone said to me, there's only one thing for it, mate. You're going to have to be the singer. And I went, no, no, no. Don't be silly. That's ridiculous. No, no, you have to be the singer. That's it. There's only you left now. We've had all these singers in. They're great. But it's because it's in a ridiculous key. And you're, you can sing in that key. <laughs> Why aren't you doing it? And I went, no, no, no. no, no, no. I'm not saying I'm a drummer. Drummer does backing vocals. I'm not. And in the end, they convinced me. And they said, no, you have to do it. And I went, do you know what? I hate to say it, but you're probably right because we're not going to find anyone else. Yeah. And it was fine doing the rehearsals. And it was when I came to doing the first gig, and I'll never forget it, the Chicago Rock Cafe in Luton. I walked out and, I mean, I, I've got a microphone over there, but if you imagine this is the microphone, mm -hmm. my hand was shaking so much you could see the mic doing that. And I thought, <laughs> oh, like that. Just grabbed it. I thought, no, I did you know. And it took probably... 
35, 40 minutes for the nerves to calm down. Yeah. That long. It was horrendous. I'm telling you, it was, ah, right. And then once it can't, for some reason, after about 40 minutes, the nerves just went away. It was fine, you know. And I started enjoying the last 20 minutes. Mm. And I remember it finished and I was like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's finished. (laughs) I was getting to enjoy that. I was starting to enjoy that now. Um, And that happened for all the gigs. And it would be like the next gig was like maybe 37 minutes, not 40. And the next one was maybe 32 minutes of nerves. <laughs> less and less and less until in the end I'd be getting five minutes of nerves at the beginning and they would calm down, you know, and then yeah. two, two minutes of nerves and then and there would be the anticipation of going on. And now it's like... Can't wait. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I can't wait to get on. And once I'm on, it's like, I'm, that's it, I'm in. I mean, when you had, back in the day, you had the drum kit blocking you from people, didn't you? You had that wall of defence, really. And then you... It's psychological. It's yeah. psychological. The, I mean, the irony is, saying to me, go and sing modern romance songs that you've been playing since the 80s and go and sing them. You know the word, you know the words, go and mm. sing them. And you've been singing them. We're doing all the backing vocals for them, all the harmonies. Um, saying to me, go and do them now without the drum kit... <laughs> It's such a was such a daunting thing at the time. Yet, if you'd have said to me, "You're at a gig and the drummer's just killed over and he's had a heart attack and it's taken to hospital," but do you want to sit in and play drums? Yeah, <laughs> I haven't heard the stuff. Never heard it. Don't care. Off I go. <clears throat> because a, it's an instrument I know and I'm comfortable behind there, and let's go. But having that stripped away and being told, right, we're pushing you at the front now. That's it. Go and do that. <laughs> so it's completely different. I'm sure you as a drummer, yeah. you know, and your dad, if he's still around, will tell you, singing with a drum kit is fine. Once a drum kit is stripped away, it is psychologically as though you're naked. Yeah. It's weird, you know, it? What the hell, you know. <laughs> so um, talk to me about your book. When did you start getting your book together? Um, well, the book was is a result of... Um, keeping diaries in the 80s. As a matter of fact, hang on a sec. There we go. These are some of them. Oh. That's amazing. So for the listeners, it says 1985 on one. And um, what was the other one? Um, no, no, 84, 85. 84 and 85. Wow. This is, you can't see it, it's embossed on it. This is 82. Wow. So you kept them from that period. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got a few in there. Yeah. So I basically I started keeping a diary in 1981. And in about June time uh, is when I met Modern Romance. So, yeah, so I've got all the times when I met Modern Romance and I started working with them doing stuff. Um, And the diaries actually began because I was going to so many clubs that it suddenly dawned on me one day that, hang on, I could go to a club on Monday with just just for argument's sake, to make it simple, a green outfit on. Just I've got a green, all green on. And Tuesday, I go out with a red one. And Wednesday, I go out with a yellow one, and whatever. And then the following week, I go out again to the same club. And I had to put the green one on again. Well, I wore that last week. And at this club, they're going to go, he wore that last week. Doesn't he have any other clothes? So I thought, right, you have to start making notes of what you wear. Because though the clothes are clean, yeah. you have to mix it up. Maybe. Otherwise, you could end up going to the same club three weeks on the trot with the same outfit. I don't know you washed it and done it. And I think, has it got nothing else? So I started making notes for that reason. Um, because I was going to two, three clubs a night sometimes. Yeah. And I think, right, if, if on Monday I go to these three clubs, 
with this green outfit and then I go to the same three clubs with a green outfit the week after and possibly even the week after that, they're going to think, doesn't this bloke ever wash? Doesn't he tend to his clothes, you know? I mean, that's crazy that your book came from a fashion point of view yeah. rather than a music yeah. point of view. Yeah, so I started writing notes in, in this book. So, right, okay, Monday, this club, all this, that, all that. And then, of course, then I started, I don't know why, I just started writing things like, you know, all these clothes, like, bumped into so-and-so, met this girl, just started writing stuff in there. And then, and then the clothes just went out the window. It just became a diary. I just like writing, did this, did that, did that, went here, went there, saw this. Yeah. And then, of course, um, everything I did in Modern Romance is in there because we're doing Top of the Pops, we're flying here, we're flying there, we you know, I mean, there's so many funny stories and so many. I'd, I'd have to think of one minute to, to, to give you before we go away. Mm-hmm. Story, but there's so many. Um, and so the, the diary was born, and then I thought years later, I thought one day I'm gonna I'm gonna have to transcribe those diaries. And I started transcribing them, and that's somebody there actually offered me a, a book deal. Awesome. Um, and I finished the diaries, so I finished transcri- transcribing them, and I gave them to a couple of friends to read, and they were they thought they were hilarious and thought great stories. Then one of them said, I have only one question. And I said, what's that? And they said, um, someone reading this would think that you landed for another planet. You just dumped here for another planet. I said, what do you mean? And I said, well, none of your beginnings. It just starts in 1981. <laughs> right before that. I thought, that's a, that's a valid point, actually. <laughs> so I decided, okay, we need to rethink this. So I've, I've now made it an autobiography in that it starts from when I was born in 1950, from the day I was born. Mm. And it's, um, because of course what I've done initially is I've done the diary from 81 to 85. Yeah. Modern romance years. And then when I started it again in 1999, it continued from 1999. So there were things that I, although I wasn't keeping a diary, there were so many stories that I can remember. Mm. Like, yeah, this gig and that gig, yeah, right? So I'd, I'd look up and see, right, that gig was that day, right? I can write the story about that gig and always look it up and see what happened. Um, so you had basically 81 to 85, nothing, and then 99 to the present day. Yeah. And um, someone said, well, there's no beginning. There's no, where does it come from? What's going on? How did that all come about? You know, what influenced you? Were there? And I thought, oh, yeah, you know. And I thought also between 85 and 99, for me, um, I achieved the greatest accomplishment to date of my life. I had my kids. Oh, that's nice. And I thought, I haven't written about that. I haven't written about my marriage, the fact that, all right, I got divorced, but got married, got divorced, got this fantastic relationship with my kids. <clears throat> they both live with me. Um, and I've not written about it, not referenced it at all. Uh, and I thought, no, he's right. I need to go back to the beginning. So I've done that. I've now written this, this very concise. <laughs> it's got an order. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's got, it's got a beginning and it's got a modern romance and it's got the unmodern romance years when I got married and had kids and everything else and just played music with different people. <clears throat> and then it's modern romance again from 99. And obviously, lots of personal stuff mm. happened. But it's a full picture. You look at Andy was born in 1958. It's now uh, 2022. And this is a snapshot of what's happened in his life the whole way through, all different things. And, and some hilarious, some stories. <clears throat> I'll give you one, actually. Awesome. Um, so 
coming with coming from a Greek Cypriot background, our parents were very poor as kids. They came from very poor. My dad was one of 14 kids. Wow. Like so yeah. you had to scrape around for your food at the time. <laughs> it, it was, have you seen that sketch, Luxury? Yeah. It was that. It was like, you know, egg and bacon, luxury. We were lucky <laughs> to even see a chicken. Chicken? What was a chicken? We never saw a chicken. Yeah, like, all that stuff. Um, you know, they'd go, you know, we just had a bit of bread and olives was our meal. You know, a few olives and some bread, that was it, you know. Um, we, we had these stories all the time from our parents. So <clears throat> when I got married, um, my wife and I used to go out for a meal quite regularly. You know, you do. You used to go out for a meal. Yeah, yeah. Nice treat her. And we found, we found this Italian restaurant we used to like going to the West End. But one day we decided, let's take your mum and dad and my mum and dad out for a meal. Because I don't, I know my parents never went out for a meal together, ever, ever. And I don't think her mum and dad did either. Mm. Um, always too busy working, but then they're not going to spend the equivalent of a, you know, what they consider to be a, a, a shopping trip on one meal. Mm. A week's worth of shopping with what you just spent on the meal. I mean, they'd say to me sometimes, oh, so I found you last night, where were you? And I go, oh, yeah, Drew and I went out for Chinese. Oh, yeah. oh so how much does it cost for a Chinese? And I go, oh, you know, 30 quid for the tourist, wherever it was at the time, 35 quid. He's back in the years. Thirty-five pounds for a meal. You could have done your week shopping with that, and had ten pounds left over. Like that could be, you know, in our day, you know, it's all that stuff. But we thought, let's treat them and take them out for a meal. They've never been right. Okay, so we said, right, we're taking you out for a meal. <clears throat> um, pick them up, took them to this restaurant in this Italian restaurant in the West End. Somewhere. I can't remember which one it was, but at the time, it was one of their favourites. And we're sitting down eating, and they brought the prosciutto and all these little things and these little dips and olive with bread, yeah, bread with olive oil and, you know, nice. vinegar and all stuff, you know. And picking all these bits and looking at the menu and, um, you know, nice ambience, nice, it's not too bright, it's lovely in there, we're sitting there, but, but, yeah, treat the parents, you know. And I said to Dad, look, look, I've got some nice food. Here. He goes, yeah, yeah, he goes, the menu looks really good. I said, do you like all these little bits? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I like these little bits. He said, but the cheese is a bit funny. Right. And I said, cheese? Because, yeah, the cheese, the cheese is doesn't... And I look round, and there's no cheese. And he's eating the last bit of this cheese. And I went, Dad, that's not cheese, that's butter. <laughs> now they bring the little squares of butter. <laughs> he's sitting there and going, well, squares, it's got to be cheese. He's going, <laughs> and I thought, that just about sums up for me the fact that you lot have never been out anywhere in your life. <laughs> I'll take you anywhere. Oh, bless them. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So where can you get hold of your book if people want to read it? Well, at the moment, it was not out yet. I'm just, oh, it's not Okay. No, no, I'm not finished yet because I've, in actual fact, even last week, I remember the story, um, something that happened to me in Cyprus, and I went, oh, my God, how could I forget that? I've, I've related, I've, I've um, told it to so many people, um, but not for a while. And then I was talking to somebody about something, and I went, Oh, quick, give me my phone. And I put a note in for this story. There's stuff that keeps coming up and I keep adding to it. But I've now got a list of probably 10 things that I need to add in there. Fantastic. 10, ten things I need to insert. So I reckon if I was to have a very good two days <clears throat> where I would be uninterrupted and sit at home and actually go, right, I'm going for it today. I'm going to put these in there and just be knocking them off one by one as I write them in. Yeah. Because um, obviously I've got a, a, a lead line and I've got to go back to that time and go right there and then you know, do the 
did the, the whole production and build up. You can't just go, I went here and this happened. You've got to do the whole thing. But I reckon if I had two days, maximum two days, uh, two eight-hour days, I'd finish it. Fantastic. Uh, got a couple of people that are interested in it. Um, <clears throat> I've got, a, I've got a, a meeting that I'm due to have with a publisher actually in, in a couple of weeks. Fantastic. So hopefully by then I'll have A, finished it, and B, I will, I will just take him a couple of excerpts and say, right, here you go. Because obviously, um, being, being perfectly honest, being a non-drinker, non-smoker, never taken drugs, don't gamble. Mm. So um, it only leads one, leaves one vice, doesn't it, really? <laughs> and uh, I've not been shy about it in that I've, in the book it says, you know, met so-and-so. So I've changed all the names. Yeah. You've been kind. Chance to present the innocent or not so innocent. <laughs> um, and I've written some, some of these stories are hilarious. Um, just things that happen you know, with, with people and girls and fans and some of the really sort of wacky things that have happened. But um, I've mentioned it all in there because <clears throat> I think it is part and parcel of what went on in the 80s. What went on with me in the 80s, uh, specifically, obviously, because it's my book. I can't deny that happened or you know, water it down. I don't think it should be watered down at all, because by watering it down, you make it not so funny. Yeah. Not that it's funny, but the, the situations around it sometimes are funny. And you have to, you know, do the whole thing and go, right, this is what happened, this is what I met this person, and the result was this. And you go, that's when it's funny. And you go, right. So you've got to do that. And... Um, I mean, I, I sent it to a friend of mine and said, I sent a bit. So I was, I'm sending different bits to different people saying, how does it read? Do I come across okay? Yeah. I want to come across as me. And they said, when you read it, it's as though you're you're narrating. They said, it's as though you're speaking, which is exactly what I wanted it to be. I want, I want and they said, it's, I feel as I'm there because it's so descriptive sometimes. I feel as I'm there. Like, Good. That's what I want. It sounds like you need to do the audio book as well then, doesn't it? You need oh, no, to- no. Someone said to me, yeah. you need to do the audio book, but you've got to do it. And That's like, right. That's right. But, yeah. but the other thing as well, they're saying, um, one of them said to me, it's really great. It's really well written. Yeah, I like the way you write, you know, because I've done a bit of journalism as well. So mm. I, not I talk like a company, I don't write that one. So I've written it. And they said, um, yeah, it's really well written. Blah, blah, it comes across really well. But there's a lot of sex in it, isn't there? And I went, <laughs> Well, hang on, figure it out. I don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs. What else is left? Like, what did I do, sit in my room all day and twiddle my thumbs? No, I went out to the company. And it was very difficult as well. When you're in a band where they're all drinkers and they were taking drugs, let's be honest, yeah, mm. they, they, they don't make any bones about it. I've, I've said in the book, you know, we're having cocaine delivered to Top of the Pops. Right. It's ridiculous. Um, but when you're in a band where all that is going on and you're the only one that doesn't do that, um, then you're going to look quite naturally for something else to do. They're all standing up by the bar, getting sloshed. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm not part of this. But I was into music, dancing. So I'd go out on the dance floor and dance. Mm. <clears throat> and invariably, people, girls would go, oh, there's that guy from Modern Nightmare. And they'd come out with a little dance, you know, get chatting, and that's it. Yeah. You know, things would happen from there. Fine. Um and it's all in the book and it's all, you know, I mean, I did have people saying, you do realise these women are using you. And I say, excuse me, who's using who? <laughs> using each other. Yeah, that's fine. There's a mutual agreement. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's all in the book and it's all, there are, as I said, some some quite funny things that are happening, um, you know, based around that. And then you've got, obviously, the people that we met, mm. you know, I've been to different people. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I, I, um, I think without being biased and I've read it, I think if I read it and it was by someone else, as soon as I started reading it, I think, yeah, this, I, I like the way it's, it's just quite funny. It's quite amusing. I've not, I've not written it as a serious book. It is a, not flippant, but it is a light-hearted view of things that happened in the 80s. Yeah. You know, yeah. in my life, around modern romance, around the whole structure of it, around the the way the money things were arranged, uh, the people we met, the girls we met, the promotional tours we went on, the, the countries we visited, the customs in those countries, if, if it was relevant, all different kind of things. It's just a general overall picture of what happened in the 1980s with me in modern romance. And of course, it's called, the book is called Essies of Our Lives, because what else could I call it? Yeah, nice, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so um, the band now, are you you're touring a lot now, recording a lot now? Yeah, I'm actually, I was actually supposed to be in Scotland recording last week, but we put it off. <clears throat> I'm now about to book it today to go in three weeks' time and finish off an album that I'm doing there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I'm not going to Ireland. Yeah, before that, I'm going to Ireland for Let's Rock Belfast. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're doing a lot of the 80s things, you know, the 80s nights that, at various places. Um, and I think there's going to be a tour set up for the latter part of the year, just in the middle of setting up a tour. So once that's set up, and I know a lot of people go, oh, yeah, we're touring. But no, we are actually setting up a tour, or someone is setting up a tour for us for the end of the year, um, the latter part of the year. And as soon as I've done it, obviously, be on the website. But I'm just waiting for him to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and say, yes, these are the venues. You can now put that out. <clears throat> so, yeah, we're doing that. Um, as I said, yeah, new recording. So there should be an album and a new single coming out. Uh, and the single... Well, I mean, I've got a choice of three or four songs on there for a first single, but some of the songs, I have to say, I've surprised myself in that they're they're co-written with other people, mm-hmm. but the direction we've gone in is very, it's still pop. I mean, it's, it's absolute pop, um, but more poppy than modern romance. It's like this is real serious pop, isn't it? you know? Yeah. There's still there's still that um, there's it's not so much a, a um, the Latin feel of modern romance. It's just, it's just a very overall Latin feel. It could be the Caribbean. It could be you've got that very sunny holiday feel about some of these tracks. Nice. And, um, I've listened a couple of them. I have to say, I've listened to them. You know, once we recorded them, put them away, then they played them another day, and I went, Do you know what? If I heard this on the radio, I would turn it up and go, "Who the hell is this?" Yeah, nice. Got the right hooks in it that have even hooked me, and I'm going, "This is great." Oh yeah, it's me, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm really chuffed about those songs. Yeah. So. so, if people want to get uh, information about the tours and the band, where's the best place to go for that? Go to Modern Romance. Do you know what? I've forgotten the name. Of, we've changed the name of the website. It used to be Modern Hyphen Romance.com. It's now ModernRomance.com. I think it is. Yes. Is it Modern Romance dot online? Is it that one? Yeah, Modern Romance dot online. That's it. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> I want an agent's fee for that. I don't go on there myself, so it's like, yeah, it's modernromance.online, that's it. That's that's the way that it goes. Andy, thank you so much for chatting today. I've had an absolute blast, and uh, I'm looking forward to your book, and I'll hopefully get to see you live at some point. But thanks for joining me today. It's been fantastic. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.